Scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 22. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call to the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To the God, to my God, I called. And from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our God and our Father, I pray that you would help us to hear this amazing psalm of praise today. I pray that you would open up our minds. I pray that you would capture our hearts. I pray that we would see the faith that David lived by, and I pray that his faith would become ours. I pray that his joy would become ours. I pray that his hope would become ours. I pray that as we press into his heart that we would see your heart and that we would be captivated by your heart and that we would go out from this place eager to seek you and to savor you and to serve you and to sing your praises in our homes and in our neighborhoods and among the nations. Oh God, please come, I pray, now by the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ and do a strong work among us. I thank you for what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. In one sense, the life of King David is uh, very complicated. Like any national leader, he lived through many times and seasons, some of which were personal, some of which were corporate. He endured many comings and goings. He had many friends and foes, many allies, many enemies. He won many victories. He suffered many failures. He visited many important places and and dwelt there and then came back to some of those places. And when you try to keep track of all the places and the importance of those places and how they work into the story, it can be a little confusing and complicated at times. David received both prophetic promises from God and he also received prophetic rebukes from God so that in many ways, uh, I think the, the interpretive grids for David's life for us become 2 Samuel chapter 7 and 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel 7, God made tremendous promises to David. In 2 Samuel 12, God issued tremendous rebukes to David. And in so many ways, those twin things become the interpretive grid for all the complicated details of his life. In another sense, however, David's life was very simple. And the reason I say that is because in David, Behind and beyond all the details, what we have is a man who is genuinely after God's own heart. This really, in so many ways, describes him. And by the way, that's the way that the Lord himself talked about David. 
in 1 Samuel 13, 14. Those are God's words about this, this man. And I would dare to say that God knew this man a slight bit better than any of us do. Amen? In fact, God knew him better than he knew himself. And this was God's word about David. In every season of his life, in every time and place, through all the complications, David sought the face of God. He sought to know the words of God. He sought to do the will of God. He longed to love the Lord his God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. This is why he wrote things like he did in Psalm 43, 4, when he said, God, you are my exceeding joy. Now, beloved, I know that you heard those words, exceeding joy, just the way I just did in my ears, but I want to encourage you to slow down and hear them. Let them grab your heart. Think about what a life of a man or of a woman would be like for them to authentically say in the presence of God and in the hearing of everyone who read his song for thousands of years that God is my exceeding joy. God is the one that I just have to have. God is the one who has captured my heart. God is the one who fills up my heart. David, my friends, was a man who loved God every season of his life, and I do mean in every single season of his life. As the sun began to set on his life and on his reign over the people of Israel, the Lord demonstrated to him and to all of Israel, and indeed through the scripture, even to heaven and earth, the Lord demonstrated that despite David's great sin and all the pain and difficult that he caused, the Lord was still with him, and the Lord was still determined to use him. The Lord was still determined to make of him the man of faith who would be in so many ways the anti-Saul, if you will. God was determined still to raise up David as the man of faith who would undo the many curses brought on to the people of God by the man of flesh. He was the one who would right so many wrongs that Saul brought upon his people. And the story we looked at last week from 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 14, in some ways it's very difficult. There are a lot of cultural details that are hard to understand, and we have to work through those things. But I think that when we do work through those things, we come to a very simple conclusion. And the conclusion is this, that God is a good God and he's a just God, and he will do justice in the earth no matter how long it takes and no matter what the complicated details that are involved. God's memory is not short, he will not forget, and he will make sure that all wrongs are righted. He will do this. And we learn clearly from this story that despite all of David's sin and the difficulty he caused, the Lord in his grace was still determined to use David to right those very wrongs. After so many years, beloved, God had this situation, this crazy situation that Saul had created, God chose David to write that situation, and when he was ready, the Lord handed it to him. And beloved David passed that test with flying colors. The point of that part of chapter 21 is that God is good and just, and that God is steadfast in love, and still determined to use David. He doesn't use broken leaders, I mean perfect leaders. He uses broken leaders, except in one case. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. The end of chapter 21, the second half of it, I was supposed to preach that last week, but there was a lot to be 
talked about in the first part of the chapter, and I just couldn't get to it, but I can summarize it for you pretty quickly here. There we see that God is still using David also to overcome the enemies of Israel, even the fiercest enemies, even the greatest enemies, even the most fear-inducing enemies. God is going to use him. Please look at chapter 25, verse 15. There you will see that there was again war between Israel and the Philistines. And if you've been paying attention over the last weeks and months as we've worked through this story, that should get your attention. And the reason that verse should get your attention is because we have not heard of the Philistines or from the Philistines since chapter 8. When David came upon the scene and became the king of Israel and rose to prominence by the grace of God, he conquered the Philistines by the power of God. And if you've been here through this whole series, we've been a year and a half now in the Samuels. You may remember back when we began that the Philistines absolutely dominated Israel. You remember that one story where we found out that they were so dominant that that there was only two swords in the whole nation of Israel. You remember that? The Philistines had absolute control over these people. David comes on the scene and by faith, By the spirit of Joshua and of Caleb, he overcomes the enemies, and then you hear nothing of them. They're just gone until right now. And why do they come back right now? I think here, at the end of David's life, after he had been established, after he had sinned greatly, after he had been disciplined by the Lord, sent into exile, returned, brought back, reestablished as king, I think the Philistines saw weakness in him. They saw vulnerability in him, and they decided to attack. And we're not going to look carefully at those verses, but if you do read them on your own, you're going to notice that specifically who attacked were the descendants of Goliath. They were also giants. And don't think that that puts this chapter in the category of a fable. This is not a fable. Later on your own, you can Google the word giantism, giantism, and you'll find out that there is such a thing as giantism. And here in this one little section of that area that we now call Israel, there were giants in the land. And after all these years, the descendants of Goliath came to to overcome David, to, to conquer him while he was weak. But by the grace of God, by the power of God, he and his people defeated the giants five times in a row, beloved. Five times in a row they overcame. And what is the point of the end of chapter 21? Well, let me ask you this question. What was it that put David on the map? What was it that caused David to come to national prominence when he was only a teenager? What was it that took a kid from the fields dealing with sheep to a few months later he's in the king's palace serving the king? What was it? It was his conquering of Goliath, wasn't it? It was the day he walked out into that field with nothing more than faith, a little sling, and five smooth stones, and that was it. And by faith, he conquered the greatest enemy Israel had faced in a very long time. By faith, David rose to prominence. I think now that the reason the Philistines, and specifically the giants, are coming back into the picture now is because God is saying that after all David has been through, I am still with him, and he is still the giant slayer. By faith. By faith. David is not doing this in his own strength. He's not doing this by military prowess. He's doing this because he loves and he trusts in the Lord his God. And by faith, he and his people won victory upon victory and he was firmly reestablished. End of chapter. 
This brings us to chapter 22. And the great psalm of praise that David wrote, which, by the way, is also Psalm 18. If you compare the two chapters, you'll see some various differences here and there, but fundamentally, it's the exact same song. And in this song, David writes to express his heart of praise to God who had destined him to overcome, who had destined him to play a certain part in the story of salvation history and who had not given up on him despite some many, many great sins. And I just think that David came to some point in his life where the praise in his heart was pent up just like hot lava inside of a volcano and he just had to explode. He had to explode in praise. In this psalm, beloved, David basically reveals to us his very, very simple way of life. And as we meditate carefully on what he says, what we see is that simple way of life is what opens his eyes to the beauty, the glory, the grandeur, the greatness of God, so that he wrote not as a man who felt obligated to say poetic things about God, but he wrote as a man who could not help but explode in praise of God. This is what the psalm is about. And through this simple, simple way of life, David came to glimpse something that is right at the very center of God's work in heaven and on earth forever and ever. But we'll come to that at the very end. For now, please look with me at verses two through four because there, David begins his psalm with an explosion of praise. He calls God by nine different names in two verses. And then he summarizes his whole way of life for us in verse four. So please look at verse two. The Lord, Yahweh, is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. One day, some people came to the famous evangelist, George Whittefield, and they asked him, sir, may we publish a few of your sermons? And George Whittefield said, yes, you may, but I wanted to tell you this. You can commit my words to paper, but the paper will not be able to communicate the lightning and thunder. And what he was saying is that you can write out a sermon and publish it. You can do that but you cannot convey the passion and power with which it was delivered. That is reserved for the moment. And I think that this dynamic is very much at play here in Psalm 18 or 2 Samuel chapter 22. David was not simply saying things that would be designed to get us to analyze God. He was trying to captivate our hearts with the God who had captivated him. Beloved, I hope that you can remember back over the months that we've looked at David's life and just know he went through so many things with God. And piece by piece, day by day, month by month, situation by situation, he saw the glory of God. He came to understand things about God. He came to love God with such a depth that words could never quite describe it. And so now here he explodes, describing God in nine different ways in just two verses. And as I mentioned, there is a time and a place to analyze the details of psalms like this. There is a a time and a place to think hard and long about what it means to call God a rock 
what it means to call him a refuge, what it means to call him a stronghold, what it means to call him a savior. The life of the mind is not opposed to the life of the heart. But there are some times when God so captivates us that we're just led beyond the realm of analyzation into the realm of wonder, where we just look at God and say, wow. And I think that's what David's up to here. I think David is helplessly, in some sense, exploding with the praise that he truly feels inside of his heart. And I think that his heart is to bring us into where he's at. I think he's trying to awaken us, awaken our hearts, awaken our souls, awaken our minds to what he has seen in God. And the way he has seen these things in God is extremely simple. In fact, this is the danger of it. It's so simple that our temptation will be to not take it very seriously and to overlook it, to think, oh, I've heard that so many times and just not take it seriously. I'm telling you, everything in David's life reduces to what he said in verse four. Very simple pattern of life. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. So let's think about this, a four-part pattern of life. First of all, I'm gonna start with the middle there because David knew that God was worthy to be praised no matter what. No matter what David thought or did not think, no matter what David did or did not say, no matter what anybody thought or did not think or said or did not say, God is worthy to be praised. This has got to be the central fact of the universe. Amen? God exists and he's worthy to be praised. Everything else is a detail. David knew this. This was the the consuming truth of his life. God is and God is glorious and God is worthy of the praise of every living thing. So, second, David simply called upon the Lord day by day by day. From the time he was a child in the fields with the sheep and learned to overcome his enemies there by faith in God to the days he breathed his very last. We're gonna see in a few weeks. We're gonna take this series into the first chapter of Kings so that we can see David's death. And we're gonna see that even there on his bed, he's still living by faith. Day by day by day, beloved, he talked to the Lord. He called upon his name. He expressed his heart. He asked for help. He expressed his praise. He called upon God and cast his cares upon God. He asked him for all of his needs and he gave him all of the glory that was due to his name. Day by day by day, beloved, David did life with his father. David walked in intimacy with his God. And this is the part that I'm saying. It's so simple that we're just prone to just pass over it like it's not that big of a deal. Everything is caught up in that. The simple, heartfelt, loving habit of seeking God day by day by day. Number three, God, in his own time and in his own way, answered David's prayers and delivered him from his enemies. And we have seen that this didn't always happen overnight, right? God is not like a vending machine. You put in a prayer, pull the thing, and boom, you get out what you want. It doesn't work like that. God is wiser than us. He knows how to deliver us, and sometimes through delaying his deliverance, he's shaping our character in ways that are very necessary. He knows what he's doing. But when God was ready, he delivered David from his enemies, one after another after another. And this leads to the fourth simple part, that as praise stored up in David's heart, he just had to sing about that praise. He just had to write about that praise. He had to write songs about that praise. He had to teach those songs to other people so that they could join in the praise with him. Do you realize that in his day, he was the most famous worship leader in the world? 
I promise you something though, he did not have a heart to be a famous worship leader. I promise you he wasn't sitting on his deck one day and say, listen, besides being a powerful king, I think I also want to be known as a musician. Yeah, that's my plan. This was not a plan of self-fulfillment, beloved. This was, a, this was a man whose heart was overcome with God and he happened to have skills to write and sing. And so he did. He did. He became the praising king of the tribe of praise, which is what Judah means. This, beloved, was his simple pattern of life. And this pattern of life is beyond, behind all of the complex details of his life. And it's one that we should both see in him and emulate in him. This is one that we should see in David, we should admire him, and we should mimic David. This is why I'm taking time with this. Beloved, I have a concern that we're people who delight in the word of God here in these public ways, but I wonder how many of us if the truth was really revealed, I wonder how many of us actually take time day by day to break open the bread of God's word and eat it and delight in our Father. How often, how long, how deeply do you actually delight in God? If that is a rebuke to you, then let it be a rebuke because it is an invitation fundamentally to come into the presence of your Father and eat of him and drink of him and call upon his name and see his hand work in your life. That's what this is about. This fact is what the men's retreat is about this year. I just finished a book called Abiding in Christ and at the quarterly meeting later I'll be giving some, uh, some of those copies out. But the whole point of it is to get us to seek God day by day by day. That's what we're gonna talk about at the men's retreat this week. But if you can't come to the men's retreat either because you're unable or because you're not a man and you're not qualified, you're not able to come, I want you to know that this is the prayer of my heart for this church this whole year. I want to pray that behind the scenes where only God can see, that God himself would stand up and testify that this is a people who loves me and who seeks my face. Beloved, everything is caught up in that. Everything else in our lives is a detail. Many of our lives, the details of our lives are in fact unnecessary details. And we can't even see that because we don't spend enough time with God. So again, if that feels like a rebuke to you, then so be it. But mainly, it's an invitation. Put your father first. Be like David. In every season of your life, go after God. Go after God. Go after God. Let him lead you there. As for David, he moves on from this general statement in verse 4 and more vividly describes his way of life in verses 5 through 20. So let's just read this whole section together, verses 5 through 20. David now writes, Pressing into the details of verse four. For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. And I hope that we know after all these months that that is not an exaggeration. He's telling the truth. But in my distress, I called upon the Lord, and to my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Angry at David's enemies, that is. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. And I get in the picture in my mind of Mount Sinai here when those thick, dark clouds descended with the presence of God. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. 
He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows. He sent out arrows and scattered them, that is, David's enemies. Lightning, and he routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He was sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord, Yahweh, was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Beloved, this language is very strong and is very poetic, but I want to suggest to you that it is not an exaggeration. David is not using the literary device that we call hyperbole, or as one of my good friends used to mispronounce it, hyperbole. This is not hyperbole. David is trying to wake us up to reality here. Do you see? There's life that we can see. There's realities that we cannot see. But the realities that we cannot see are no less real just because we can't see them. Do you remember Elisha's servant? I can't remember his name off the top of my head. But they were in a, quite a pickle of a situation. They were facing an army, and his servant was just trembling. And Elisha was filled with faith, and he said, Oh, Lord, can you please just let him see? And God, by grace, opened his servant's eyes, and the servant looked and could see all around, literally just completely surrounding them, that the forces of God, the spiritual forces of God, the strong angels of God were there. And the servant said, Actually, those who are for us outnumber those who are against us. David, in the practical situations of his life, saw spiritual realities, and he's trying to awaken us to these things, beloved. He's trying to help us see that the Lord really is God, and that though his ways may remain invisible to us in many ways, when we call upon his name and he answers, he is moving on our behalf. He is moving in power on behalf of his beloved. Believe me. Right now in our culture, doesn't it feel a slight bit chaotic? Doesn't the world feel like it's just swimming in chaos in some ways? I promise you that if you were inside of David's culture at many times of his life, all you would have been able to see with your eyes is chaos and you would have wondered, where is all of this going? Where is all of this going? But God was in total control and God was acting despite what appeared to be nothing but chaos, and I think David is trying to capture our hearts with this truth. I think he wants us to know that there's an unseen world and that God is working for us there. He worked for David, and he is working for us. And please notice that David ends this section. The very end of verse 20, he says that the Lord delighted in me. I love that, because you know what that means? That means that the Lord was not working with David in some just sort of corporate functional way. It's not like the Lord said, listen, I have a job that's got to get done and I think I will pick David. God did not just send a man to do a job without really caring about that man. God loved David. God was walking with David. God had a personal relationship with David. 
Can you think about what, what it would feel like for God to look you square in the eyes and say to you, I delight in you. Not just I've forgiven you, I've decided to bring you into my family, but looks you right in the eyes and says, I delight in you. David had this kind of intimacy with God, I'm sure, through a thousand different quiet times. A thousand different times of worship with God, the Lord just sometimes would grab him by the face and say, son, I love you. My son, I delight in you. In fact, I would say that God's delight in David is the root of God's deliverance for David. Do you see that? Delight leads to deliverance. Deliverance isn't just some random thing. God is delivering a man because he loves that man, and that man is walking in fellowship with him. I'm, I'm telling you, beloved, this summary psalm of the life of David is trying to paint a picture for us of a God and a man who are walking in loving fellowship with each other. And in that, it's trying to say, come, come in, live in this way. And I pray that we'll have ears to hear that. This leads us now to the one part of the psalm that's difficult. Not super difficult, nothing like last week, I'll guarantee you that, but it's a little bit difficult. So let me read for us verses 21 through 31, and then I'll say a few words about them. David continues, the Lord, Yahweh, dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from them. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you, I can run against a troop, and by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God... His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. So on first reading, I think most of us who know something about the life of David look at this and we just think to ourselves, really David? Your righteousness? Your cleanness? Your perfection? Your blamelessness? You have no guilt? Do you not remember, David, the days of the raids when you were living with the Philistines and you were just in this one time of your life inappropriately killing people and then lying to hide it all? Don't you remember that? David, do you have no memory of Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about Joab? What about all the chaos you caused? Do you not remember your own words, Psalm 51, and many other Psalms where you're humbly, freely acknowledging your sin and asking God to come and deal with your sin? David, what's happening here? This is the one difficulty of this psalm. And I think that the way that it's solved is, is by two ways. There's two things that we can see that will help us understand what David's actually saying. First of all, in verses 21 through 24, David uses a whole string of words to mean things that, we, that he, he doesn't mean by them what we would immediately think he means by them. So let me just explain a few of them so you'll understand what I mean. First of all, when he says that he's righteous, just the way that he uses the language in Hebrew, he's not making a claim to absolute moral perfection. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that in these situations where he had fierce enemies that had come against him to t- literally take his life, 
He's saying that he was in the right and they were in the wrong. There's sometimes where the guilt is not 90-10 or 50-50. There's sometimes where one person is right and the other person is just flat wrong. That's what David is saying. David is saying, Lord, you know that I was seeking you. I was submitting to you. I was following you. Saul had no right to do what he did against me. I was in the right. He was in the wrong. When you analyze the actual language he uses, this is what he's saying. When he says that he's clean before the Lord, for us, I don't know exactly what that means to you, but if you think about the writings of Moses, if you think about the Torah, if you think about the life of the temple, that word clean meant that you're able to come into the presence of God. And any God-fearing Jew would understand that in order to be clean, you had to make sacrifices for your sin, which assumes that you're not perfectly morally righteous. David is saying, I was clean in the sense that I did whatever I had to do to be able to get in front of you so that I could call upon your name, so that I could seek your faith, so that I could be in fellowship with you. And when he uses the word blameless then, he's actually using a Hebrew word that more literally means wholehearted. So what he's really saying is, God, I was wholeheartedly for you. Perfect? No. Wholeheartedly for you. Yes, I was that. One of my favorite commentators on the Samuels, his name is Dale Ralph Davis. He kind of writes, by the way, if you ever want a commentary on the Samuels, I would really recommend his. It's just called First and Second Samuel, but he writes almost in a, a narrative way, almost uh, like, like he's preaching or speaking or something like that. The details are really, really solid, but he's a very good writer. And he said this about it. He said that David is not claiming perfection in life's particulars, but wholeheartedness in his life's commitments. So he's not saying that he was actually without sin completely. All he's saying is that, God, I was wholeheartedly for you. And I think that even the Lord himself would testify that that is true. David was leaning on God even when he sinned. Do you remember what he did right after Nathan confronted him with all of his sin? I mean, I don't know exactly the timing, but I'm thinking Psalm 51 was written pretty much right after he was confronted. David's heart was to go after God in all seasons and to be about the word of God in all seasons, which is why he was able to say, I kept your words and I did not turn aside from them. He's not claiming perfection. He's simply saying that, God, your heart and your words meant everything to me. Now, it was the Lord himself who said to David in that whole situation with Bathsheba that, David, you despise my words and therefore you despise me. So again, we're not saying David was perfect. He was pretty darned imperfect in that situation. But again, in the days leading up to it and in the immediate aftermath after it, this was a man who went after the heart of God. So he is not claiming perfection. What he's saying is he had a ravishing love for God. And this is why he ends this section with putting all the attention on the Lord. Please look again at verse 29. For you are my lamp, O Yahweh. And my God is the one who lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. This God, his word proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Beloved, in David's mind, his righteousness was owing to God and not himself. And he makes this crystal clear in the following verses. So now let me read the next section for you, 32 through 46. I just want to read the whole thing. For who is God but Yahweh, the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? 
This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. So do you see, he sees clearly that if he is blameless, it's because God made him blameless. And then listen to how he continues. And all of the things for which he gives credit to God. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. It's not Joab and his buddies who teach me how to fight. It's God who is training me to do his will. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. I love that line. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them, I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. And why did that happen? For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me to sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. In other words, I did justice to evil doers in the name of God and by the power of God. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost their heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. And again, he's saying with those last words, God did this. God made this happen. I was sitting yesterday by the river right over here. There's a little park that's actually over that way. There's a little park now. There's a beautiful bench right by where the Elk River and the Mississippi come together, and I love to sit there and pray. And I was sitting there praying for this morning and just thinking, imagining David, and I just could see a picture in my mind of him sitting there in his palace with all that God had done for him, just shaking his head in wonder because he knew he was a weak man. He knew he was a broken man. He knew that no matter what people thought, no matter what people would say about him, no matter what people would write of him, that he was not responsible for all the victories he had. He was not responsible for the great political and military power he had in Israel and in all of the surrounding nations. David knew that God took a weak man and greatly displayed his great power in the earth. David knew that everything he was was owing to God. This is the praise of his heart. And he is writing this song, beloved, to his people and now to us to say, don't look to me. Look to my God. Look to him. Be amazed with him. Be impressed with him. Seek him. Love him. Know him. Call upon his name. And you will see his glory. And you too will sing his praise. This is what this psalm is about. In Psalm 20, verse 7, David wrote, some people trust in chariots. And some people, they trust in horses. But he trusted in what? He said, I trust, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's what we trust in. And I promise you, David was a king. He had chariots and he had horses. He used chariots and he used horses. But calmly, in the depth of his heart, he knew that the battle was in the hand of God. And that God could swing a battle any way he wanted to swing that battle. This is what made Jonathan and David become such close friends to the day of Jonathan's death. They both knew that the secret to their life was faith in God and faith in God alone. Beloved, David's trying to do everything he can to say, look that way, look that way, look that way. 
Everything about my life should point you to God. And so he ends with another explosion of praise, a nice parenthesis, if you will, on the end of the psalm. So if you'll look with me at verses 47 through 51. David writes, The Lord Yahweh lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to your name. And he's still doing that to this day through the Psalms, through his songs. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows his steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. With these words, David sums up his entire song, and in many ways he sums up his entire life. So rather than going through the details that I think we've already covered, please just notice what he says in the last verse. The last verse adds a thing that helps us to understand that David saw into the massive work of God that was implied in the entirety of his life. First thing David said is, you have worked great salvation for me. Very, very great salvation. David was in many impossible situations, and he watched God get him out of those situations in such a way that everybody had awe in God. He knew that God had worked a great, great salvation for him. And then he said, you have shown your steadfast love to me. Please remember that the steadfast love of the Lord is the affectionate heart of God that is bound and willing and wants to keep all of his promises. The steadfast love of the Lord refers to when God makes a covenant with somebody and he keeps that covenant all the way to the end from the heart, from the heart. Kim and I, next month, uh, yeah, next month, will celebrate 25 years of marriage. We've been in this thing 25 years, a lovely covenant, believe me. I am not suffering being married to this woman. I love her with all my heart, I love her. That's how God feels about his people. Just think about it. God says, you want to compare my people to something in the world that you'll help you understand? Let's say I'm the husband, they're the bride. That's how I love my people with tremendous affection. This is his steadfast love. And beloved, what I'm trying to tell you is David saw it with his eyes. This was not just a theological category in his mind. He saw it and it gripped him. It gripped him. He said, you have shown your steadfast love to your anointed, by which he meant, he said, David and his offspring forever, okay? The David part we get, but the offspring part I gotta say something about. That word in the Hebrew, offspring, is in the singular. The Hebrews were able to say it in the plural, but the author deliberately wrote it in the singular. The same thing happened in Genesis 12 where God promised to Abraham that through his offspring, singular, he would bless all the nations of the earth. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.16 that that word offspring refers to Jesus Christ. That God was saying to Abraham, through Jesus, I will bless all the nations of the earth. And maybe the earth is filled with chaos in some ways right now, but I'll tell you another thing it's filled with, the grace of God that's reaching to every corner. A lot of people came to faith in Jesus today all over this earth, and they're going to come again tomorrow and the next day. There are people out there preaching Christ and bearing fruit today. That is happening. Why? Because God is showing his steadfast love to his anointed one, to the offspring of David. And I think 
I believe with all my heart that David actually saw this. I don't know how much detail he saw, but I think like Moses, David knew for a fact that his whole life pointed to somebody who was infinitely greater than himself. There's so many Psalms that I could take you to and show you that David just had to have known. He had to have seen at least the outline of the glory of Jesus Christ. He had to have seen it. He had to know that all the sin and brokenness of his life thrust us to this greater one because David himself needed a Savior. David, the great king, needed a much greater king. And then all the positive aspects of his life, they point to Jesus too, just to name a few. David was the praising king of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ is the ultimate praising king of the tribe of praise, and he will be that forever. And I've encouraged you before, go to Hebrews chapter 2. It says there that we're going to hear Jesus sing. He's going to sing the praises of his Father in our presence. And oh, I cannot wait to hear him sing. David was a wise king. Jesus is wiser. David was a powerful king. Jesus is more powerful. David was a just king. Jesus is more just. David was a merciful king. Jesus is more merciful. Everything in David's life says look to another. I am nothing more than a broken shell, but also a pointer to one who is not broken at all. I'm a pointer to the one who God delights in without any reservation at all, Jesus Christ, the great and mighty, the Lord of heaven and earth, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And I think that David knew that in the end, it was Jesus himself that had delivered him from so many trials. I think David knew that. I can show you where I'm certain that Moses glimpsed that, and I think pretty certainly that David did too. He wants us at the end of his psalm that is summing up his whole life to look beyond him and to look to another, to Jesus Christ. So I want to just end with this. I want to bring us back to where at least I began the message in the sense of that I think David would not have experienced any of this. He would not have seen any of what he saw in Christ were it not for this simple way of life that day by day, He came seeking God. He opened up the bread of life. He ate of it. He drank of the Spirit. He received insight. He received passion. He received instruction for life. He received wisdom for the manifold things that he had to deal with day by day by day. And over time, he watched God display his glory again and again and again and again. So let's walk into David's life because the details of his life are different than our lives. We will not be David. His destiny is not ours. But I'll, I'll tell you in one way, his destiny is ours. And that is that through simple faith, through simply walking with God day by day, we are destined to see the fullness of the glory of God in Christ. So let's pray now that God will help us with that. Lord Jesus, I, I feel uh, almost speechless. I just don't know what to say except help us. There are So many things, Father, that serve as blocks in our hearts and just in our schedules that keep us from coming to you and being with you and valuing you in the way that David valued you. But I pray that you would help us, Lord. I pray that even right in this moment as we're praying that you would be showing some of us how we can remove obstacles and just go and be with you. And I pray, Father, that as we will learn to be with you that you would show us your glory even as you showed David your glory. Father, your work in his life was unique. Your work in his life was stunning. Your work in his life was beautiful. Your work in his life is different than your work in our lives, and yet you are working in our lives. 
And so I pray again that we would come to the fullness of our destiny, that we would come closer to beholding the glory of God in Christ by simply seeking you day by day. Oh God, please come, I pray. By your spirit, convict as you must and help us as you will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.